This morning we'll be continuing our sermon series as we go our way through Nehemiah. And today we'll be looking at Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5, which you can find on page 552 of your pew Bible. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and our vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren. Our children are as their children. And indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been bought, brought into slavery. It's not in our power to redeem them. For other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed their Jewish brethren who are sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. And then I said, what, are you doing? what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to their promise. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, Twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides forty shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily 
was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions, because the bondage was heavy on the people. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now I want to look at this passage, particularly in light of verse 15, where we read about the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Beloved brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, on January the 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, dealing a fatal blow to slavery in the United States with the words, all persons held as slaves are and henceforward shall be free. However, already long before these words, there was a groundswell of support for the abolition of slavery in the United States. One of the driving forces behind it was a famous and deeply moving picture. It's a woodcut image of an African man in shackles on his knees, holding up his hands in supplication. And the caption underneath it reads, Am I not a man and a brother? You see, although many people today see the Bible, looking back on the Bible, see it as having encouraged slavery, many abolitionists disagreed. In fact, they felt that one of the reasons behind slavery was the dehumanization of people with different skin colors. But abolitionists argued that all people were fully human, created in the image of God, and therefore brothers. On the basis of the Bible, they fought for the emancipation of slaves and saw it as a great wickedness that was being carried out. Now, it's on this same basis, this basis of fellow people being men and brothers, that Nehemiah argues for the protection of the fellow Israelites. He chastises the Jews, saying, you even sell your brothers that they may be sold back to us. The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Now in Nehemiah's words today, we see God's emancipation proclamation. And so I bring you the word of God today under the following theme and points. God declares through Nehemiah that he is a God of freedom. We'll see first the cause of oppression the reason for redemption, and finally, the act of liberation. Up to this point in time, there had been a fair amount of conflict involved with Nehemiah's plans to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The nations surrounding them have threatened them with false accusations of rebellion. They have threatened to raid the people who are working on the wall, forcing the people to mount a guard day and night. Morale has been dealt a big blow by fellow Jews sharing rumors that the nations surrounding them would overpower them, even despite everything they're doing. And to top it all off, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, 
who should have been helping his fellow Jews, was working hard to make life difficult for his own people, favoring the interests of Ammon over that of his own God. Yet despite all of this, Nehemiah has been working hard to encourage his people that they are all fighting for a common cause. They are all working together to protect God's chosen people, to advance God's kingdom, to lift them up from the ashes and take away the reproach that had surrounded them. Although some of them had mixed motives, some of them were divided in their hearts and they stood against it, many of them were sincere and were greatly encouraged by Nehemiah's words from the previous chapter, our God will fight for us. But then comes even more trouble. Famine strikes the land. It could be because of bad weather, or it could be in part because of their work on the wall and not being able to tend to their fields. But harvest time comes, and there seems to be little or nothing to harvest. As it is harvest time, the creditors now come calling, and it's time to pay. Many of the people of Judah were people who had left much behind to come to the land. They weren't particularly wealthy. The land meant life or death to them. You hear of some people who live from paycheck to paycheck here in Canada. Well, in their cases, these people were living from harvest to harvest. They had mortgaged their lands, their homes, and in the cases where they had nothing else left, they had mortgaged their families. And now a famine came, which was enough to take it all away. I find the opening words in response to the fact of famine quite interesting. Nehemiah doesn't speak of the people in general crying out. The book actually specifically brings up the woman, the wives of the people. Generally in the Old Testament, when we hear of the people crying out, it just uses the words, the people cried out, the people themselves. But in this case, it's women who are mentioned in particular. Some suggest that this is because the women being more involved, were in, more involved in the home while the husbands were out at the wall. And so they were more aware of what was going on. And this is something that we can keep in mind today. Sometimes ladies will see more going on in the home than the husbands who are out on the job site. The people led by the woman cry out against their Jewish brethren. They cry out against these people to whom they owe debts. They've come to the realization that their families, whom they've put up as collateral for their debts because they have nothing else, are now going to be seized as slaves by their fellow countrymen. What bitter irony this is for them. We read in verse 8 that many of them were slaves in foreign countries before being bought and set free and then brought to their beloved promised land. But now having come to the promised land, they again have to hand over their children into slavery. At least when they were in exile, their family members were together. 
Now, before we get overly critical of those who put up their families as collateral for loans, we need to recognize that this was something that they were allowed to do, and that at this point they really didn't have a whole lot of other options. But those to whom they were being sold were certainly not dealing with them in a spirit that God had intended for his people. Let me explain. In a world that embraced slavery, God allowed it, but only in certain situations and with certain parameters. First of all, he absolutely rejected the ideas of slave hunting. He says in Exodus 21 verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and either sells him or if he is found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. When you kidnap someone, you are illegitimately taking their life into your hand. And as this was the case, your life would be forfeit. Second, one of the few situations in which it was permissible was in the case of debt. But even in this case, there were limitations. We read in Leviticus 25, If one of your brethren who dwells with you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and as a sojourner, he shall be with you. You are required to treat him with respect because he, like you, was a member of God's covenant people. We read in verse 42 of that chapter, For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You are not to dehumanize someone else because both of you were serving a higher master. Moreover, you are not to hold them indefinitely. We read in Deuteronomy 15, verse 12, the following. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. Now this may seem pretty extreme to some, but consider those who go into tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars into debt today and have no way to pay for it. They're often in bondage to debt for a lifetime. Of course, today we can file for bankruptcy if the burden gets too great, but even then it hangs around us for the rest of our lives. But this was not an option for people in the ancient Near East. God, on the other hand, wanted fair treatment for his people. And so, instead of money, the creditor would get labor. And the people who are working should be well-treated while working for the creditor. After six years of labor, having freed the Hebrew servant, you were not to leave him in this state. You can imagine that. It would be difficult for someone to get back on their feet after this time. Going out into the world with no job, no money, you would end right back in debt and be sold to the very next creditor. Because of this, God adds in Deuteronomy 15, when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. From what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give him. What you have received from God was also meant to help your poor neighbor. God has blessed you directly through your prophets, and now he wants to bless this neighbor of yours indirectly through you. 
And what was the reason for this? The next verse reads, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this thing today. God accomplished this for us. And now he commands his people to respond in kind. Not outside of what they can afford, but in the power and out of the riches of what God has supplied for them. For some people, this was an extremely difficult thing because it was a financial blow to lose a faithful servant. And to them, God follows with these words in Deuteronomy 15. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years. Then the Lord will bless you in all that you do. In obeying God, God says that as a general rule, he'll make it worth it for his people. Because in knowing that they will be free, they'll have something to work towards, these servants. And in knowing that they'll be given a portion of their master's blessings, they'll have a vested interest in working hard to prosper him. And in faithfully obeying God, they would also feel God's blessings. This was what was behind the slavery that was allowed due to debt. God always had freedom in mind at the end of it. And he desired to have his people ultimately have the well-being of their fellow man, their brothers, at the forefront of their minds, even when they were forced to take them into their homes as servants because they had offered themselves up as collateral for debt. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, oh, you're whitewashing a little bit. It's painting the best possible scenario a pretty good picture of what was actually a horrible life. And in some cases, you would, you would be right. Because wherever God puts up laws, human nature rebels against it and strives against it. Mankind uses what benefits them, and then they pervert the rest. And that's what's made eminently clear in our passage in Nehemiah 5 here today. In Nehemiah 5, we read, Verse 4, we have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is at the flesh, as the flesh of our brethren. Our children are as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It's not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. Those who were collecting debt had backed their debtors into a corner. They weren't interested in their best interests. Instead, they did their best to compound their losses, to make it impossible to repay so that they would be able to take everything. And having taken everything, they sold their fellow Jews, male and female, into slavery into the surrounding nations. Instead of giving them the opportunity to pay for their service with work and then setting them up for life after debt, they were taking away their lives completely and slaving them for a lifetime of service to godless men. We can see that by Nehemiah saying, you're selling them to other people and we're buying them back again and setting them free. This doesn't make sense. Nehemiah becomes deeply angered when he hears about this. But he doesn't respond hastily. He lines up the reasons why what they are doing is wicked, what the intent of the law was, how they are standing in opposition to God's law, 
and then he approaches them. I think that that's something that we can do as well, that we can learn from as well. Too often we're quick to see how someone else is breaking God's law in a situation that we're involved with, but we don't take the time to take stock of our personal guilt. And we'll see how Nehemiah deals with this in a moment. We read, after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. Usury, taking interest on top of everything. So I called a great assembly against them. At this great assembly, Nehemiah levels his charges at them. But he doesn't stop there. He also admits his own guilt. He himself has also been lending money to the people. And he realizes that this is wrong. This is a time of great poverty and need. This isn't some individual who needs a quick loan. Some individual who just has to get back on his feet in order to get back into the game. No. A large portion of the people of God as a whole are suffering. Therefore, it's the task of those who have to rise up and give to those who are in need. The wealthy who can provide for themselves as well as others should do so because God has called them to love and care for their brothers and sisters. And because he recognizes that this is a call from God, he ends it with a symbolic gesture. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. Shakes it out. All the dirt being tossed aside. This is what God will do. And then he proceeds to carry out exactly what he's commanded to his people. We read that not only does Nehemiah do exactly what he commands, but he does his best to rise up and be above and beyond on this occasion. Because he fears God, he puts the needs of the people above gathering wealth for himself. He's wealthy enough without getting richer off the backs of people and without needing to invest in land for the time being. And so he completely devotes himself and his men to the work on the wall, supporting them from his own funds. He doesn't collect the taxes of the governor because they were too heavy a burden for the people at this time. And on top of it all, he feeds 150 Jews and rulers from his own pocket, as well as those who come from the nations around, all in order to support God's people, to advance his kingdom work to the best of his ability. Now, as we've mentioned up to this point, as we've mentioned many times in examining this book, it would be easy to lift up Nehemiah in light of this, with regards to this. It would be easy to elevate him and say, wow, what a great guy he was. How selfless he was. But even Nehemiah confessed that he had initially done wrong. So what changed his motivation? What changed his heart? This we find at the end of verse 15. The former governors and even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. 
At the end of the day, it was God who provided for his people. It was God who liberated the downtrodden, who returned them to their homes and to their lands, who reunited the impoverished widow with her enslaved son, the bankrupted father with his dear daughter. It was God, the fear of God, that allowed him to push this forward. The recognition of who God is and what kind of a God he is that allowed Nehemiah to proceed in this way. Because of God, this prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 61 had come to pass for them. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn for Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, and that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations." This Isaiah had preached in advance that this would come to pass in Israel. That this would come to pass for the people who were gathered together, who had come from every tongue and tribe and nation being gathered back together in Jerusalem. This liberty so that they could return and work and rebuild And because of this God, this God who already proclaimed it, already decreed it in times past, because of this God, that same prophecy comes to pass for us today. Because Jesus Christ himself seizes on those exact same words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then we read, then Jesus closed the book that he had read from, the scroll of Isaiah, and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In Jesus Christ, this prophecy of liberation, this prophecy of being set free from bondage, which was already fulfilled in some small way for the people who were in Jerusalem, is fulfilled in its completeness for us today. So for us, this episode in Nehemiah's life calls us to look beyond ourselves, to look beyond individuals who help, to look to the one who grants true freedom, because we are not only called to help those around us, but we are called to look to him ourselves. This episode in Nehemiah's life is a reminder to us that we have a God, a God who is a God of liberty, And not just any kind of liberty, but he grants us the freedom to serve him as best as we can in the situations that we're placed in. 
we might not live the safest lives, the happiest lives, or the easiest lives. But ultimately, in God, we are promised the best lives. He recognizes the impossibility of our situation. It's impossible for us to fully and faithfully serve him because of how great our debt is. We have a debt that reaches to the sky, which we wouldn't be able to repay in a hundred lifetimes. And more than that, we're daily increasing this debt. Because our God is a God who's holy and therefore expects perfection from us. And yet he provides us with all we need. So how can we stand in the presence of a God like that? And this is where the news gets good. We respect Nehemiah for what he has done, but we recognize it as a reflection of who God is and what he has already done for his people. Nehemiah is not doing this out of the goodness of himself, but out of recognition of who God is, that he is a God of freedom, and that this God, as he shows his goodness through Nehemiah, he shows his goodness to us today as well. In Jesus Christ, we find a more perfect payment. We find a more perfect deliverance because we have a more perfect deliverer. He is the one who has redeemed us from the enemy, not with silver or gold, but with his very own life. Now, as we remember this liberty, as we remember the kindness of our God, let us remember the words of Jesus Christ in Luke 12. To whom much has been given, much, has, much will be required. So we have been liberated and set free. Let's now turn to him and offer our lives as living sacrifices, sharing the word of this liberty with those who are around and living lives that reflect this liberty. For we have a God who offered his very own son to set us free. He has shown us mercy. He has shown us grace. What love beyond all measure. Amen.